In a global industry where anything can happen, where mistakes cost much more than dollars, we bring you expertise from around the world to ensure that everyone goes home safe every day. The internationally acclaimed Oil & Gas HSE podcast starts now with your host, Russell Stewart. Hey folks, it's Michael O'Sullivan, the host of the Oil & Gas Tech Podcast. And I just want to jump in here really quick and let you know that this particular episode of Oil & Gas HSE is made possible by the very smart people at mCloud Technologies. Now, we here at OGGN have just been getting to know the folks over at mCloud, and I'm telling you, they are doing some fantastic stuff for the industry. Just think about connected worker and all the amazing things that you can do just by having a little monocle in front of your eye and a little microphone, and you look at things and you talk, and they magically show up in the cloud on a dashboard. Now, here's the exciting part. They just opened a brand new ESG and digital transformation hub right here in Houston, Texas, and they are hiring in all areas. So if you've got anything to do with field operations, or if you want to work for a really cool, fast-growing tech company, then go to mcloudcorp.com and you will learn all about it. Today, I have on the show Dan Alford. Dan is with a company called Arc Specialties. Let's see... Arc Specialties, which, well, first of all, Dan, thanks for coming on the show. Well, thanks for having me on. Safety something that we're big on as a machine builder. It's kind of central to our job. Okay, so your logo says automated manufacturing systems. Tell us about that. Well, you know, you got to go back to 83. I'm old. I picked the name when I was just 23 years old. And back then, there weren't hardly any robots around. Nowadays, we're mostly doing robots. But back then, it was mostly dedicated machines, drilling, tapping, cutting, things like that. That's the name I came up with, and we, we called it machinery. Nowadays, I'd say we're probably 70% robot. I think that's a subject that everybody's going to be interested in. I mean, robots, I mean, that's cool. So you actually manufacture the robots? Well, it's kind of interesting. What we are is a systems integrator. And so uh, in America, we pretty much destroyed our robot industry as far as the designing and building them here. That's a whole other conversation. So I'm buying robots from Japan, Germany, and Sweden, and then we're integrators. Because when you buy a robot, it comes without anything at the end of the arm. It's kind of sad. It doesn't have a hand or nothing. And so we add the welding torch, the drill, the laser, whatever it takes. And then we write the software and we build a fixture and we make it work in your factory. So that's what an integrator does. But, you know, everything's bigger in Texas. So whenever we got a job that's too big for those three robots I just mentioned, we actually are, as far as I know, the last remaining manufacturer of large robots in America. Speaking of in America, you're in Houston, correct? Houston, Texas. Been here since 79. Been working in the oil field the whole time. What's kind of interesting is, you know, the oil field's tough. You know, it's tough, dangerous, and hard. And so we found that technologies we've developed for making rock bits and Drill pipe and blow up preventers works well in other countries and other industries. So now we're in 32 different countries around the world. Oh, wow. Well, we're going to come back to that here in just a minute, but you mentioned something about the fact you're old. You actually, you were around before what we call here in the United States, the OSHA standards came into effect. Is that right? You are correct, sir. You know, my dad was an electrician and I actually worked in a little electrical supply house in Austin called Blonde Electric on 3rd and Trinity. And we used to joke that you could tell how long an electrician had been working by how number of fingers were missing, you know. So I remember back when things were dangerous, it was 1970 that Nixon signed in the Occupational Safety and Health Act. 
not the administration, but the act itself. And I was looking up some data. And back then, non-fatal accidents were 11 per 100 per year. 50 years later, because of this, we're down to like less than three per 100. So that's a huge improvement. You know, I don't necessarily think the government ought to get involved to solve our problems. But I think in this case, something went right. People developed a safety attitude and maybe OSHA was part of it, but it's gotten a lot safer and I don't see as many missing fingers nowadays. Well, that's great. Of course, you know, how much the government should be involved in our lives. That's probably a debate that's not for an HSC show and my sponsors or whatever. But (laughs) I think what you mentioned, that actually was a result of what you just mentioned, attitude changes, people being, you know, caring more about safety. In fact, I just interviewed a 25-year safety veteran. That was one of the things that we talked about. He said, we've got this thing now, it's called the great resignation. Everybody's, you know, going in, you know, resigning. COVID's caused them to, you know, change occupations or this sort of thing. And we were talking about the benefits of having a thorough safety plan in place. And he said, you know, people are looking at that kind of stuff. The safety plan says, do you really care about me? Do you really value me? And people value safety and people are tired of losing their fingers. So I think that's a great thing. I think maybe, and let's talk about this, some of what you do though, sometimes you can put a robot in a position where you can protect a human from danger. Isn't that right? You are correct, sir. We like to say that the robots will take the dull, dirty, dangerous jobs. You know, they're not doing the fun stuff. They're doing the stuff that you would rather not do. And so the robot itself is a safety deal. I just put two robots offshore. This is kind of historic. We, we put two robots on a drill ship and we just did the first ever robotic riser run. Oh, wow. Yeah, no, this is great stuff. And that happened last week. We're going to go offshore again next week and, and do a longer run. But, you know, they call that area on the drill ship the red zone for a reason. It's dangerous. Absolutely. And speaking of colors, all of your machines are what? Safety blue. You know, like I said, I grew up when things were dangerous. I think that in some ways, you and I, as old guys, we got a little more perspective. I think our risk tolerance has been calibrated by seeing how dangerous it could have been. And so I've always had a safety attitude. We actually use third-party auditors. I'm going to throw in a pitch for a couple of my buddies. Professional testing in Austin, they do safety audits for me. And Blakeman and Associates, they do safety audits for me too on my machines because, you know, sometimes you got to go to a third party to recognize your problems. That's a good point. Another set of eyes. Exactly. Now in robotics, you have to have some kind of, and you talked about the, you mentioned a phrase earlier about robot integrators. There's one group which certifies robot integrators. Is that right? That is correct. Currently it's called A3, which is the Association for Advancing Automation. But up until recently, it was called RIA, Robotics Industrial Association. And they're the only people that will certify robot integrators. Okay, and now let's, only, what's an integrator? So the integrator takes that robot that doesn't have any kind of tool on it, doesn't have any software in it, and then they do the design of the tooling. You know, I don't care if it's a laser cutter or a drill or, you know, or a painting robot. Somebody has to make that robot do the job. And that means hardware and software and safety fencing and risk assessment. And that's what an integrator does. And there's only 47 of them that last count in America. 
but I guarantee there's probably a thousand integrators, but there's only 47 that have bothered to become certified integrators. I don't get it. Now that's all across the United States. Yeah. There's only two in Texas. You're kidding me. No, no. And we're the only ones that are certified in welding, you know, and I'm not bad mouthing the other guys, but I wish they would go through the testing because they'll learn something. You know, you have to prove technical competence. Okay, that's a good thing. Keeps people from buying robots that don't work. But you also have to prove that you understand how to do a formal risk assessment. And that's kind of your world, right, is the safety aspect of it. Right, right. And, you know, as with all the codes and specs in America, they're voluntary. And so this one's, it's been around for six or eight years, but it has not been embraced by industry as much as I think it should have. Okay, and then A3 is also involved in robot safety standards? Right, right. You know, somebody's got to write these standards. And so most of these standards still say RIA, you know, which was the name up until last year. So RIA writes the standards, and then ANSI adopts the standards, and then OSHA follows the standards. But it all starts with, you know, voluntary codes and specs. You know, that's the way industry works. But A3 is kind of the governing agency. You know, one of the latest new technologies in robots is called cobots. Have you heard of collaborative robots yet? No. Okay. So then it all falls into safety. So I thought I'd bring it up. But a cobot is a collaborative robot. And a cobot is unique in that it has sensor systems built in. So if it hits you, it won't hurt you. So it can work right alongside a human being. And that allows robots to work, you know, in proximity to people rather than putting them in a fence. And so it's opened up a whole lot of interesting new opportunities. But as you can well imagine, opened up a whole can of worms as far as safety goes. A3 has been instrumental in generating the cobalt safety standards because, you know, a cobalt can be safe as, you know, it won't hurt you, you know, by hitting you. But what if it had a sharp tool? Ah, yeah, so you, <laughs> just like you got, if you were working next to a human who had a sharp tool, you want to make sure you're not in a situation where somehow or another they're going to accidentally cut you. Oh, yeah. You know, I do a talk for some of the professional societies. I'll actually bring a cobot into the talk and I'll have all the people there eating dinner and listening to me and I'll have the cobot moving a welding torch and I'll walk into its path and it'll hit me and it'll stop. Okay. That's what a cobot does for a living. And then I have a tool changer. That's something we do in robotics. So a robot can have more than one function. And I'll take the welding torch off and I'll put a machete onto the robot. And then I'll ask for volunteers. <laughs> you know, I'm making a joke, but it's part of the risk assessment that you have to do on a robotic system because it's not just the robot that's potentially dangerous. You know, if there's a laser on there, that's an eye problem. If there's chemicals, there's other problems. So That's why a risk assessment is so important when you're designing and building a robotic system. So that's actually a very good point. So here we start out saying, hey, robots are taking humans out of some of the dangerous aspects. But at the same time, just like humans on an intuitive basis have to be careful, if the robot's not designed safely, you've got basically the same problem. Right. And traditionally on robots, the way we've made them safe is you put them in a cage. But what happens then is, you know, we'll put sensors on the door. So if you were to open the door, the robot would shut down. Well, you know, you can make them idiot resistant, but you can't make them idiot proof, right? And so people will have been known to override these switches. So, you know, ah, you know what I'm talking about. Right, and, uh, right. 
Oh, and so there's some interesting new technology. We just did a lunch and learn on safety here at ARC last week, had all the engineers in, because it's kind of like an arms race. You know, the idiots are getting smarter and then, and we're trying to make it harder to defeat the system. So now the doors, instead of just having a magnet to determine if they're closed, we have an RFID tag. And so you can't cheat it with a magnet. You have to have a unique RFID tag. Okay, well, I don't know. I have no idea how you would defeat that. So we'll see if they can figure out a way around it. But in the meantime, we've got the upper hand right now. So what is RFID? What does that mean? Radio frequency ID. You know, they're using it all over the place for non-contact reading of data. So you could have an RFID tag on a box that goes past you on a conveyor belt and I can run an inventory. That's what it's traditionally been. But I just thought it was pretty interesting that the safety guys have figured out that's kind of a unbeatable way to make a safety door switch hard to beat. That's interesting. But even then, you know, let's say, you know, we can build multiple levels into this system. On that offshore drill ship I'm working on, you can't, you can't put a fence around it. It doesn't work. So what we're doing in that case is we've got laser scanners. So it's a zone scanner. So it's a sensor, and we have four of them on every one of these robot integrations, and it will detect if anyone moves into the zone. But it's not just, you know, go, no-go deal. We can have it so that if you're far out, we can slow the robot down, turn on a siren. When you get closer, we can stop the robot. Like I said, it's a continuing escalation on safety. That's great. Okay, so you mentioned this application offshore with the risers. Give me some other, I mean, how prevalent are these things on oil rigs? And No, they're not. Robots are supposed to stay in the factory, right? That's traditionally what they've been. But, you know, I've been doing nothing but robots since the 80s and technology is constantly moving ahead. And as it does, it allows us to do things that you couldn't have done with a robot in the past. Before we could go offshore, we had to develop robotic vision systems, because we have to find where the bolt is and where the hole is. And then we had to develop something called soft servo, because we're torquing these bolts to 20,000 foot-pounds. And no robot can handle that kind of torque. So instead, we have to have the robot pick up a torquing wrench and then use a reaction arm to take that reaction torque, right? But that means the robot has to kind of go limp so we don't damage the robot. It's kind of a long story, but the robot has to float. So it's called a soft servo, and we can do that in a single plane. So as it torques these bolts, you know, point of my story is technology constantly improves robots and allows us to tackle jobs we could never done before. But most robots are sitting in a factory and you bring the problem to them. So what you're saying is that's changed. You're actually taking the robot out to the site now. Yeah, not always, but, you know, sometimes, you know, you go to the mountain. Sometimes the mountain comes to you. <laughs> you know, we're doing an interesting one right now on ships. You know, it's kind of hard to move a ship, right? So we've got a robot. It's a standard industrial robot. What we're doing is leveraging proven technology and we put it on a electric cart. And so the robot will run over within this shipyard to find work. And the human's driving it over there. We haven't made it autonomous yet. So the human goes and finds work for the robot, parks it in front of the part that we want to weld. And then the robot will then search for the joint, you know, because it's got to know where that weld needs to be. Right. And so it'll search for the joint and then it will weld it up. And then the cart will start up again. We'll move over to another problem. It's always looking for work. 
Okay. So I'm fascinated by this. And so you're actually, you're manufacturing, you're putting all this together at your shop there in Houston. Yeah. You need to come visit. It's so Oh, I fun. will. I will. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're doing everything from electric cars to a hot tap at a plutonium plant to potato skins to sunscreen, rock bits, you know, you name it. And people go like, well, you know, what a variety. I go, no, not really. What it is, it's motion control. You know, the robot doesn't care if it's moving a drill, a welder, a saw, or an inspection tool. It's moving it. And that's what we're good at is motion control. Wow. Okay. Well, that involves a little bit more than just welding. Oh, yeah. No. I told you, I came up with his name when I was 23 years old. So (laughs) don't hold it against me. So, you know, when we do get a welding job, and about a third of them still are welding, we call it ARC specialties. But if we're inspecting gaps on sand screens, we call it ARC specialties. And we just don't say the word. Oh, okay. All right. Okay. Since this is HSE, of course, our emphasis on this show is always everyone coming home safe. But we do talk a lot about the environment. And so ARC Specialties is actually doing something in that realm, right? Yeah, it's kind of an interesting story. My wife, you you probably ought to have her on. She has her own company doing environmental work. One problem in America is people have spilled a lot of stuff on the ground. That's an issue, but it's a bigger issue when whatever that contamination may be, you know, gasoline, trichloroethane, whatever, gets into the groundwater and migrates across your property line to your neighbors. And... What's interesting about this is nobody talks about it, but I've got machines running in California, Georgia, Missouri, and Texas that are dealing with this problem. And so what the environmentalists do is they know which way the groundwater's flowing, right? And then they drill a series of wells and they figure out which wells are contaminated. And so that means, and we drill them right there on the property line, right? And so you figure out which ones are contaminated and then you can't let that dirty groundwater go next door. It's not ethical. It's not right. And so what you do is you pump that out and then treat it. And that's been fascinating for me because some of these pollutants float. Some of them sink. Some of them you clean with air sparging. Some of them you clean through carbon filters. Some of them you have to balance the pH. Okay, well, somebody's got to build this pump and treat system. That's us. So you design and build a pump and a treat system for the groundwater remediation. Right. It, once again, it's people come over here and they see the robots. They go, oh, your robot company. I go, no, not really. We're a software company. And it's the same thing on pump and treat. We're controlling pumps and you know we're titrating pH and we're monitoring carbon levels and all this stuff. It's a big control system. And that's what we're doing here. I think it's kind of fun and it's useful. You know, I feel good at the end of the day that we are cleaning up pollution and definitely preventing it from migrating over to other people's land. And that's a great point. And it needs to be, you said people, you have them running all over the country, but people don't talk about them. We need to be talking about these kinds of things. We are doing things that protect the environment. We're not just going out there and, you know, polluting the land, polluting the air. You know, we're doing things to clean this thing up and we're actually doing a good job. Right. But, you know, in every case, you know, I'm not even going to tell you the names, you know, because the companies are embarrassed that they've created the problem where I think they should be bragging about how to solve it so that other people might follow their lead. But, you know, if anybody out there is listening that has a groundwater problem, you know, you don't just ignore it because it ain't going to go away. But there is a way to mitigate it. 
and pump and treat's the way to go. But, you know, like I said, that's not a single machine. Now you need the chemical engineers to get in there. That's beyond my pay grade to figure out whether it's floats or sinks and how do you get it out of the water. But you can get it out. That's the whole idea. And Right. One way or another, you can get it out. And then it's kind of fun to, it's kind of neat. Our program, our machines will just sit there and run autonomously for years. And then you can log on to them and you can see how much water they pump today. And they're like, you know, little factories that run by themselves. Well, that's great. That was actually, I was fascinated to talk about robots and how that related to safety. And then this environmental thing is kind of a bonus thing. So finally, Dan, so your machines are safety blue for obvious reasons, but tell us about your red shirts. (laughs) I wanted safety blue because I want everybody to think about safety because I do. So safety blue made sense. But when I started the company, I knew that I was going to get dirty. Okay. You know, because I work in a dirty environment. And if you rewind all the way back to the 70s, I used to race motorcycles. And Honda came out with an Elsinore, which is their first two-stroke dirt bike. They did a little study on what color looked best when it was dirty, because these bikes were going to get dirty. And that color is red. And so I figured we're going to get dirty. So I give the guys all red shirt, and hopefully they look pretty good even when we get a little dirty. (laughs) Okay, so based upon some of the timetables you've referred to, I'm guessing you're somewhere in your 60s. So surely you got, and with the emphasis on safety, Dan, I'm sure you don't ride those silly motorcycles anymore, right? I haven't ridden a motorcycle in over eight hours. Oh, well, that's another subject that I don't want to get into on a HSE podcast. No, you brought it up, so we get to talk about it. And, <laughs> and so, like yesterday, I rode one on the street, and last week I rode one in the dirt. Okay, and people think that's dangerous. And my contention is people that need to understand what real risk is. And you and I saw it back in the day when it was dangerous, and you got to be able to accurately assess risk. I'm seeing some stuff now that I think is crazy. When I go into plants, sometimes I'll get into a plant. You're not allowed to touch anything without gloves on. What that does, I think, is it hides people from real risk because there's a lot of stuff in the world you can touch without gloves on. And so I think people need to, instead of making these broad rules like that, like motorcycles are dangerous and you can't touch nothing without gloves, you need to start making true risk assessments. And that's the way I live my life is, you know, I don't drag race motorcycles, but I do ride them in the dirt and there's a big difference. And so I think people need to get their riskometers recalibrated. Mine is calibrated if it works for me. Some people are going to think we scripted this, but to swerve into that the way we just swerved, I mean, what you just said there about recalibrating your riskometer, we need to copyright that phrase. I always, for people who listen to this show, I always want them to come away with at least one thing when they get done listening, saying, you know, that was worth my time listening to this podcast. And I often use the phrase, you know, this one thing was worth the price of admission. What you just said there was definitely worth the price of admission. And I can't believe we got to it the way we swerved into it, talking about <laughs> talking about motorcycles. But Dan, I'm so glad Michael O'Sullivan, I know you were on his podcast because this is all high tech stuff. But I really appreciate you coming on my show. It's been very interesting. We'll put your LinkedIn contact information in your website in the show notes. And in fact, if you'll send me those two other guys you were, you were mentioning early, I've put them in the show notes as well. I want to 
thank everyone for listening. Tune in again next week for another episode of Oil & Gas HSC, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Please leave us a review on iTunes, Spotify, or whatever podcast platform you use. Like us on LinkedIn and use all your social networking to tell your friends about us. And we'll see you next time. Tune in next week for another engaging episode of the Oil & Gas HSE podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.